Let's see. Okay, we're in First Peter chapter 4. Going to finish the chapter today. Can you believe that? Wow. Three verses, last three verses, and then it's on to chapter 5. First Peter chapter 4. Let's read the last three verses, 17 through 19. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Now, as I was reading this, it reminded me of a couple of things. One, we probably should acknowledge the passing of arguably the greatest spiritual leader within the Christian uh, worldwide Christian network of the 20th century and on into the 21st, Billy Graham, right? We praise God. We know where he's at. And we know that he, his family has tremendous peace. And this has been a, a week of celebration all over the world. Even the Sirius XM satellite radio has the Billy Graham channel. I don't know if you knew that. If you get Sirius XM, I forget the, the number, but you can find it. It's up in the 100s, 132, something like that. They're replaying all of his messages from the past. And so there's been a great deal of acknowledgement. There's been some negative stuff too, of course, not surprisingly. Uh, who could even imagine that 20, 30, 40 years ago, that anybody even in the secular world would dare to speak negatively about Billy Graham? But in this day and age, there was one young girl who uh, tweeted or texted or something like that and, was, and uh, talked about him having fun in hell, said some very bad things about him. Uh, a few years ago, you wouldn't have even seen anything like that. It just shows where we're, where we're headed as a society, as a nation. But many, many are celebrating, and so we celebrate, rejoice with Billy because we know he's been promoted now. It also reminded me of an article I read about uh, Benny Hinn. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And in this article, now this, I don't think this is the first time he's done this, but he claims to have repented for going too far with the prosperity message, the prosperity gospel. And, of course, it's convenient to repent after you've already accumulated $43 million dollars which he has. But uh, on the other hand, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He says as he's gotten older and he's matured, he realizes that it's been out of balance and not totally biblical. Pretty encouraging. So pray for Benny Hinn that he keeps moving in the right direction. He's 65 now. Maybe he's finally coming around. I don't, it could be just another scam. I don't know. Because he's done similar things in the past and hasn't really changed. But he has publicly admitted that uh, it was out of balance and not totally scriptural the way he was teaching. And he's repented from that. So that's kind of encouraging. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. God, ask you to bless the study of your word. Father, just as the song we sang today, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Lord, we thank you for your word, which guides our lives, directs us, keeps us going in the right direction gives us wisdom and guidance and insight and understanding as we walk through this life with you. Lord, bless this time of study we now ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Peter makes this statement in relationship to what he's been talking about throughout this passage. Persecution, trials, tribulations, people rejecting us because we no longer run with them. What happened to you, man? You used to be so much fun. Now you're a Christian, you're a big drag. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And so this is the context in which Peter now hits us with this 
strong word. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. By the way, he's not talking about the physical building of the church. And Peter's day, many believers didn't even have churches to meet in. They were meeting in homes, uh, outdoors, wherever they could. So the house of God is one of the phrases or terms used in the Bible to speak about you and I. We are the house of God, individually and corporately. But God allows us to go through difficult things in this life for the purposes of one, we've talked about this before, strengthening us. Jesus, you could say he's our strengthening coach. He helps us to bear the weight of the trials and tribulations of this life so that we can become stronger. Just like athletes, Christians are to train to get stronger so that when we encounter trials, tribulations, attack from the enemy, attack from other people, we have the strength to endure and to persevere. And sadly, we know there are many who have not. Many who have shrunk back, as we talked about last week. So he allows it for strengthening. He allows it for purifying. When John the Baptist predicted The one coming after him whose sandals he was not worthy to unlatch. He was speaking of Jesus. Prepare you the way of the Lord. John the Baptist said he will baptize you. He says, I baptize you with water. John's baptism. Water baptism for repentance of sin. But he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Fire in the life of the believer It's a positive thing. It's a purifying thing. Just like they use fire smelting to purify gold and silver, precious metals. They heat them up until they come to a liquid stage. How many of you have ever felt like that? That you're being heated up to a liquid stage. (laughs) And then the impurities rise to the top and then they're skimmed off so that you have pure 100% gold or silver or what have you, palladium, so forth. So for strengthening, for purifying, the fiery trials that Peter mentions are to purify us, to strengthen us, and as Peter also discussed earlier on, to prove our faith genuine. As we talked about when we covered that passage, nothing could be worse than to be going through life with a faith that is not genuine. To be self-deceived. And there are many in that boat as well that don't understand that being a, a Christian, a believer, a follower of Christ is not just a matter of being religious. It's a matter of having a relationship, a personal relationship with God. And there are many on this planet, not only under the umbrella of Christianity, but obviously any other faith, That sounds narrow-minded and dogmatic, doesn't it? The only problem is, God's the one who said, well, Jesus in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, people who don't believe in Jesus, who don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I am, they have a problem with that. You Christians, you're so narrow-minded, you're so dogmatic. To say that there's only one way. Except we didn't say it. He did. And so, it's not an easy path to follow because many, many people are going to be offended when you tell them there's no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a rising percentage within the church that no longer believes that either. I'm trying to remember my percentages. I believe it's in the 30-some-odd percent range of so-called Christians who believe that Jesus actually sinned. One-third. In the evangelical church, my friends. That's scary. Because if Jesus sinned, it's game over. He can't die for your sins if he sinned. But it's upwards of almost 50% believe that there are other pathways to heaven besides Jesus Christ. This is what generation after generation after generation of brainwashing, 
secularization, watering down of the gospel has produced. Almost half of all people who identify as Christians now, at least in the United States of America, and I'm sure that reflects much of Western culture, Western civilization, believe that there are other pathways to God. Well, if that's true, Jesus is a liar, and once again, it's game over. But it's not easy to follow that path and having to be honest with people and say, you know what? I love you, God loves you, but you've got to understand, according to the word of God, according to the words of Jesus, there is no other way to get to God, to make it to heaven, to come into possession of the precious gift of eternal life than to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That message is not popular today, not only outside the church, it's not extremely popular in the church. We talked about this a little bit last week, remember? We went over the list of words that leaders in churches are told not to use today. Do you remember that? Right, like the cross, blood of Christ, sin, repentance. Those words are offensive. Well, I'm sorry, but they're in the Bible. It's going to be very difficult for you to have any kind of a relationship with God or follow after Him, walk in the right path, the narrow way that Jesus talks about, if you're offended by the words of Scripture. Now, the way many get around that today is they avoid the Scriptures as much as possible and try to just read the comforting ones, right? The upbeat, uplifting ones and avoid everything else and focus more on the social interaction within the church you know the potlucks the ice cream socials and so forth and fellowship is one aspect but fellowship is not real it's not genuine if it's not rooted and grounded in the truth of god's word i mean there are a lot of organizations out there that have fellowship right the friars club and you know what else there's a lot of those groups out there They have fellowship, the Shriners, you know, so forth. But unless it's rooted and grounded in the truth of God's Word, it's not true, genuine fellowship in the sense that the Bible intends it. What else? Strengthening us, purifying us, proving our faith genuine, which is vitally, that's essential. To know that you are in possession of a true, what I call, you know, I don't know, I... I don't know where I heard this or if I coined the phrase myself years ago. I, I'm sure others have used it. But to me, it's become an important phrase, a saving faith. A genuine faith is a saving faith. A genuine faith that you believe absolutely that the shed blood of Christ on the cross of Calvary was sufficient to pay the sins of every man, woman, boy, and girl who ever has lived or ever will live on this planet. And salvation is by grace alone. You cannot earn your salvation. There is no salvation by good works. That you believe the words of Christ in John chapter 3 where he says you must be born again. And again, that even is controversial that uh, some people say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born-againers. I've got a rude awakening for you. That's the only kind there is. Jesus says you must be born again. A saving faith is one where you embrace these core beliefs and principles of Christianity as set forth in the Word of God. You put no faith in the works of the flesh. You put no faith in the works of man, the wisdom of men. You put all your faith absolutely 100% in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And you determine in your heart and in your mind that come hell or high water for the rest of your life, you're going to follow Him and you're going to serve Him. That is a saving faith. That's why the Bible says, He who endures to the end will be saved. You can enter into, you know, a marathon or some cut, um, do it for the kids, the 5K here at Calvary Chapel East in a few weeks. But there is no recognition for those who drop out, is there? Well, maybe in today's world, because now we give out medals and trophies and ribbons for participants. It didn't used to be that way. 
It used to be if you get first, second, or third place, you get a ribbon or a trophy or a medal. If you don't, hasta la vista, baby. But now, again, another one of the problems in our society and our culture today, because the Bible teaches that we're to run the race so as to win, to go for the prize, the prize of eternal life, the prize of being rewarded by Christ when we see Him face to face. But now when we have an entire society uh, that's been taught, it doesn't matter. Just show up and you get a prize. You don't have to do anything when you get to work. Just show up and we'll give you a paycheck. If you've, if you've been out there in the public arena, in restaurants and retail stores and so forth, you have witnessed this. You mean you actually expect me to come over and help you? I don't know where anything is anyway. I just had that happen in the last day or two. Do you know where the such and such is? No. And no, no evidence that they care to find out. You see how the enemy is so subtle? He has gradually brainwashed our nation, our culture, our society so that people can't even understand or relate to the truth of God's Word. They've been brought up without it. They've been brought up without God. They've been brought up without Jesus. They've been brought up without the Bible. So when you tell them it's not okay to live with someone you're not married to, you know what I mean when we say live together? I'm not talking about two guys or two gals being roommates, right? But when you say, no, 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 you're not supposed to sleep with them until you're married. They look at you like you're from another planet. That doesn't even register. No comprende. We've gone from a, a nation, a culture, a society that was built upon a Judeo-Christian belief system to the degree and to the point that even those who weren't true believers adhered to it because it was the prevailing belief system in our nation. Do you understand what I'm saying? When the majority believe a certain way, then other people tend to fall in line even if they might not be totally on board in their heart and in their mind. That's why they, even though people say, well, you can't legislate morality and there's some truth in that, that morality comes from the heart. If your heart is right with God, then you will be a moral person. But in the absence of everyone being a true believer and everyone being filled with the Holy Spirit, the next best thing is to have laws in place that protect and support biblical morals, values, and ethics. Would you agree with that? Because it is a deterrent. For example, marijuana. How many in Colorado, Washington State, now California, Washington, D.C., if I missed what other states are, have legalized recreational marijuana? How many immature Hawaii? It grows wild there. <laughs> How many unlearned, untaught, immature believers in these states where marijuana is now legal will participate because they will say, well, if it's legal, it must be okay. Right? See, people are deterred by laws. You look at something and you say, well, if it's illegal, it's probably not good. Is that always true? No, because we're dealing with the laws of men and men are imperfect. Men are stupid, so sometimes they come up with stupid laws. And the more that men follow the Word of God when they enact these laws, the better the laws are, right? You go back to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, and so forth. Those are real smart. And if we follow those, we'll have a good society. So this argument, well, really nothing should be illegal. We should legalize prostitution, marijuana. Actually, we should legalize all drugs because then there wouldn't be any drug cartels because you could buy these things over the counter legally. That's a bunch of baloney, by the way. But the idea that, 
Well, if we have no laws, then it'll be much better because then everyone can just... Oh, in the book of Judges, it says everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. How did that work out? Not so good. Not so good. Okay, well, I've gotten pretty far off the reservation there. (laughs) Proving our faith genuine. And then fourthly, yes, sometimes, Virginia, God allows us to go through difficult things in this life for the purpose of chastening us, disciplining us. The Bible says, those whom the Lord loves, He also chastens. Just like any good parent who really has their child's best interest at heart, though it's much easier to just let them do whatever they want and not deal with things, that's not really love, is it? That's laziness. That's selfishness because you care more about how it's going to affect you negatively than how it's going to affect your child positively, right? It's like the old expression, okay, bend over, son. This, is, this hurts me more than it hurts you. He doesn't believe that. But if you really have a love for your child and you're seeking to be a good, godly parent, it really does hurt you more. You don't want to inflict punishment on your child. But if you don't, you're not a good parent. God is the greatest parent of all. Abba, Father. And so those whom He loves, He chastens. So there are times, yes, we're not perfect yet. We won't be till we see Jesus face to face. And so the fourth reason that I give you today for these trials tribulations, testings, is for chastening. Sometimes we need correction from our Heavenly Father, just like our children need correction from us. And again, if He doesn't chasten you, maybe you're not His. Because if you are a child of God, guaranteed at some point in your life, I'm sure more than once, you're going to be chastened by the Lord. Okay, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. The time has come. Why does Peter say that? Why in Peter's day, as he and the other apostles are in the process of writing the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, why all of a sudden, after about 4,000 years of God's interaction with the human race, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, of course, why has the time now come for judgment to begin at the house of God. I would propose to you, now that Christ has come, we've received a fuller revelation concerning God and His relationship with us. After all, Paul was called by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Prior to that time, prior to the coming of Christ, the Gentiles were lost in darkness. Only the children of Israel had God's light. And certainly there were proselytes from other nations that came in and became worshipers of of Jehovah God, of Yahweh. But by and large, the Gentile world was lost in darkness and idolatry. But now the time has come. Now Jesus has come. Now there's a fuller revelation, giving all men the opportunity for full access to God the Father through His Son. So with greater revelation comes greater responsibility. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now, the, one of the great things about being a follower of Christ, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, someone who's been born again and is in possession of a genuine faith, is that we now are in possession of the precious gift of eternal life. And so when we leave this world, we will not undergo judgment for our sins because in receiving Christ, you have acknowledged that He was judged on the cross for your sins. Why did Jesus go through what He went through? For you, for your sins. That was the judgment of God, the wrath of God that should fall upon all human beings, but now has fallen upon Christ. Therefore, if you trust Him as the Savior of your soul, you have no fear of judgment for sins in the afterlife. The only thing that Christians will be responsible for is their works, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There will be the Bema seat of God where we will stand before Him and find out whether we are receiving rewards or not receiving rewards. But it has nothing to do with our salvation. Once you become a believer, your sins have already been judged on the cross 
as Jesus took them in your place. But in this life, see this is, here we go. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. We don't have to worry about judgment in the afterlife. But in this life, we are held to a higher standard as believers. It's not a judgment that leads to eternal punishment, but it's an accountability that God holds us to a higher standard. And that's why judgment begins with the house of God. We are the house of God. And if the house of God is not kept clean... Now, if you guys came in here one, two, three times, however many times, and just saw trash everywhere, I bet you wouldn't come back. You'd think, that's disgusting. What's the matter with this place? They can't even keep it clean? That's not a very good witness, right? We are the house of God. If the house of God is not kept clean and holy, clean, pure, and holy, there's no way we can reach our world for Christ. And again, we see the enemy's strategy at work in that more and more people under the umbrella of the church have embraced this weak, watered-down gospel that's it, it used to be, and the real gospel still is, come as you are and then become who God wants you to be. In other words, you come as you are, Christ accepts you as you are, because if you had to change first, Again, game over. We can't be perfect. That's why we need a Savior. But once we come, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit begins to happen in our lives. The transforming through the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. We change. We're no longer the people we used to be. That's how it's supposed to work. But the new gospel, the 21st century gospel is, come as you are and feel free to stay that way. That doesn't work. But that's the message that's going out. It's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. If it doesn't happen, if there isn't cleansing, purifying, if there isn't holiness within the church, the house of God, the body of Christ, we can't reach our world for Christ. Now we can reach them with that false gospel because we will only make disciples that are like us. And if we are not living a holy life, a pure life, pleasing to God, one that lines up with the Word of God. But we're living the life of those who promote this idea that if you're homosexual, no problem, come on in. And you don't have to, get, you don't have to repent. You don't have to renounce that. Are you living with your boyfriend or girlfriend? You don't have to stop doing that. It's okay. God loves you just the way you are. If that's the lifestyle you're living, now in this church we... We don't have a problem with abortion um, because it's not a real person until it comes out of the womb. There are churches that believe that. There are many, just as there are pro-life churches and we count ourselves as being one of those, there are many pro-abortion churches out there. And if that's the kind of church you're in, if that's the kind of Christian you are, then that's the kind of people you will reproduce. Do you follow me? That's why Peter said 2,000 years ago the time has come for judgment to begin with the house of God because if the house of God's a mess forget helping the rest of the world, right? Then he goes on and if it begins with us first what's Peter saying here? If it begins with us first what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter is warning that the fate of those who refuse to obey God in this life will be much worse than that of those who choose Him in this life, obviously. Better to be judged now as a child of God than after death as a child of the devil. Hebrews twelve six: For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son He receives. So you see, as believers, we have no fear of judgment in the afterlife Christ was judged on the cross in our place. And we should not have any fear of judgment in this life, but we do need to understand that God holds us to a higher level of accountability, a higher standard, because we have become the house of God. God lives in me. God lives in you. God lives in you. We are the house of God, and it has to be kept clean. 
so he will chasten those whom he loves when they need to be chastened. I would rather be chastened now by God as one of his children than punished in the afterlife as one who rejected him. What do you think? What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So again, the Lord chastens his kids in this life so that we might have an awesome eternity with him in paradise. That's why we chasten our kids. That's why we discipline our kids, right? So they can grow up to have wonderful lives. We want them to be happy. We want them to be successful. We want them to enjoy their lives. None of us want any of our loved ones to go through life discouraged, downhearted, depressed. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. So as loving parents, we do everything we can to train our children up in the ways of the Lord so that when they're older, they will not depart from it because we know true joy and happiness is found nowhere else but in Christ. It's the same way with God. The Lord will chasten His kids in this life so that we might have an awesome eternity with Him in paradise. Satan will be the one in charge of punishing those who reject Christ throughout eternity. Again, I make my point. I would rather be chastened by God in this life than punished by the devil for eternity. Does that make sense? I think it makes a whole lot of sense. I think it's a no-brainer. If we could just get, a, get it across to those who refuse to believe. Proverbs 11.31 If the righteous are repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? And again, we've seen this over and over again, how people who seem to you know, have everything, they're wealthy, they're prosperous, they're healthy because they have the money to hire the best medical care that the world has to offer, and they have all these perks and all these benefits, and then one day they die a horrible death. We've seen it over and over again. But even if they manage to live out a long life without any major conflicts, when they stand before God, it's all going to go down the tubes. Verse 18, Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Scarcely saved? Does this freak you out a little bit? Scarcely saved? Well, pastor, I thought you told me I could know that I know that I know I'm saved. And then Peter says, scarcely saved? Barely saved? What is that all about? Okay, we are secure in Christ, as Pastor Chuck Smith said many years ago. We are eternally secure in Christ. If you want to be insecure, go ahead and backslide. I guarantee you, I've never met a backslider yet that was secure. And if they were, they're really deceived, let me tell you. If you're not following God... If you're not obeying God, I don't care if you went forward one Sunday in church and prayed the sinner's prayer. I guarantee you, you will be insecure, nervous. You get nervous when you hear the truth of God's word. You get, you get nervous when you hear people preach the gospel because you know you're not right with God. Scarcely saved. We are secure in Christ, but here's why Peter says we are scarcely or barely saved. Let me tell you. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. So are you saved because you're righteous? Not at all. In fact, if that's all you had to go on was your own merit, you wouldn't be saved. You see, scarcely saved. Let me give you another one. Isaiah 64.6, but we are all like an unclean thing. Sounds like something your wife says to you when you haven't had a shower in a few days. We are all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The best, most wonderful, good deed you could ever do to God, it's a filthy rag. Why? Well, are you wasting your time trying to be good? No. But God is perfect and anything short of perfection is unacceptable to Him. That's why you must be clothed in Christ's robes of righteousness the idea is with jesus living in you when god looks down at you he doesn't see the filthy rags anymore he sees his righteous holy son we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags we all fade like a leaf 
and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Acts 4.12 Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's another one of those verses that bug people. Really, I can only get saved if I, if I call upon Jesus. That's right. That's not fair. You know what's fair? Let's talk about fair. God is holy, righteous, perfect in all of His ways. He is just. You know what fair would be? That we all get toasted. That nobody gets to go to heaven. Everybody goes to hell. That would be fair. Because by God's standards, none of us are worthy. I don't think we want fair. I think we want grace and mercy. What do you think? Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. What's the paycheck you and I have been earning our whole lives? Death. That's all we can ever earn by our own efforts is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I could go on and on. and I mean, we could stay here all day and look at verses like this. The point is, we are scarcely saved not because God is frivolous or you know, changes his mind and so forth. He's uh, nebulous. No, we're scarcely saved because we are vile, filthy, rotten, wretched sinners. And that offends a lot of people too. I didn't come into church to be talked to like that. (laughs) Well, then why don't you just go down to the local bar, knock back a few, and have people lie to you? You know, people love to be lied to. That's why we wind up with presidents like some of the ones we've had in the recent past. Because people love to be lied to. Don't tell me the truth. I don't want to hear it. Lie to me. And ladies, that's why you get yourselves in trouble a lot. Because you listen to men who are liars. I love you, baby. I'm with you forever. Number disconnected. This number is no longer in use. Return to sender. Return to sender. Remember you said, address unknown. He said, oh, honey, come back to me. He ain't there no more. <laughs> but for some reason, we love to be lied to. And that's why a lot of people don't like God, because He won't lie to you. He tells you the truth every single time. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. We cannot earn our salvation. That's why Peter says, if the righteous one is scarcely saved... We're scarcely saved because if we don't grab a hold of Jesus, we ain't saved and never will be. We're scarcely saved because it has nothing to do with us or our performance or our abilities. Grace is God's unmerited favor, undeserved. It means getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Two sides of the same coin. One side is grace. God's unmerited favor. You don't deserve it, but He loves you, and He's going to give it to you if you ask Him, if you trust Him. The other side of the coin is mercy. Not only are you going to get what you don't deserve, you're not going to get what you do deserve, and that is eternal punishment in hell. Again, the brainwashing that's gone on for generations now with our generation after generation of young people. The entitlement the belief that I have a right to everything because I exist. I shouldn't have to do anything for it. It should just be given to me. Because I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. (laughs) Self-esteem. Boy, that has helped our world so much, hasn't it? This whole emphasis on self-esteem. Loving yourself. Well, you know, even the Bible says, now I don't believe in the Bible, but let's just twist it and use it for our purposes. The Bible says, you know, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, if you don't love yourself, you can't love anyone else. That's twisting scripture. Because when that was written, the understanding was everybody already loves themselves. Self-love is not the answer. Self-love is the problem. 
If left to our own merit and our own devices, we would be Rice Krispies and Post Toasties. Not even Cinnamon Toast Crunch, because that's too sweet. Okay. If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now the scriptures tell us where they will appear, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I couldn't find any preacher, teacher, theologian, or scholar who has commented on why Peter speaks of both the ungodly and the sinner. Aren't they one and the same? Kind of sounds like it. But could it be just this is food for thought? Again, I couldn't find it anywhere else. It's my thought, my idea. But could it be that the reason Peter says the ungodly and the sinner, is he referring to the fact, and we kind of alluded to this earlier on, that some who are religious and think they are saved really are not. Is that a possibility? We talked about proving your faith genuine. There are those running around who do not have a genuine faith. Is that who Peter's talking about? The sinner is obviously someone who is unrepentant and unresponsive to God's message. His offer of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But what about the ungodly? What does that person look like? Let me read you from 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Paul writes to Timothy, Mark this. Make note of this. Pay attention, Timothy. There will be terrible times in the last days. Boy, sounds like the time we're living in. All these mass shootings and so forth. And again, it's not about weapons. It's about hearts and minds. Broken hearts, broken minds that have not been taught about the love of God. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Gee, I think I just talked about that. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Nah, not in this day and age. None of that here. Boastful. Oh boy. We see it all the time, don't we? YouTube, Twitter, Tweeter. Tweet, I know it's tweeting, but same thing, isn't it? Twitter, tweet. Smell my feet. (laughs) Proud, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Just go to Walmart any day of the week and you can witness that. (laughs) Ungrateful, unholy. Ungrateful. Boy, does that sound familiar? God has blessed this nation more than any nation on the face of the earth. And all people do is complain about it. How horrible it is. Most of them have never been anyplace else. They don't know what the rest of the world is like. These all like Haiti, you know. All the outhouse countries, as Trump would have said in a different language. (laughs) The truth is offensive. Ungrateful, unholy, without love. There's a lot of lust out there, right? Not a lot of love. Not a lot of agape. Unforgiving. Man, I'm telling you. That is the scourge of our society. Unforgiveness. Everybody's all about vengeance. Getting back. Revenge porn. Posting pictures of their ex-boyfriends and girlfriends on the internet. Doing anything to hurt to, to damage, to destroy. We see it at every level of our society. Unforgiving, slanderous. Yeah, it doesn't really matter if it's true, right? And people know this now. Again, the brainwashing, the, the training, the manipulation, they now know they can say anything about anybody and immediately that person is labeled whether they did anything or not. I'm telling you, we're living in the time of Second Peter chapter 3. Don't doubt me on this. This is the time we're living in that Paul warned Timothy about. Slanderous, without self-control. I'm not going to have time to elaborate on all these, but you know, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Not lovers of the good. Brutal. Not lovers of the good. It's not good enough anymore to just beat somebody up or kill them, you know. Those are bad things, obviously. But now it's gone beyond that to where there has to be ridiculous over-the-top mutilation and destruction and just demonic. It's demonic. And yet rarely today is anyone punished on a level that's commensurate with the crime they've committed. 
they're turned into the victim, are they not? That's also predicted in the Bible when it says in Isaiah that they would call that which is good evil and that which is evil good. Okay, let's finish this out here. Second Peter 3. Not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I think that's an easy one to figure out. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. See, a form of godliness, but denying its power, that's just empty, false, fake religion, isn't it? You don't acknowledge the power of God to transform you, to change you, to make you into the child of God that He wants you to be. In fact, you now believe there are other pathways to God, to heaven. You believe that Jesus sinned. Your faith is so watered down. You have a form of godliness, but you're denying His power. And what does Paul tell Timothy? Have nothing to do with them. That's not nice. That's mean. That's rude. I mean, I encountered this 25 years ago or more in this church when some people had to be held accountable and disciplined. And as I interviewed different people who were in relationship with them and actually a part of a home group that they were leading, and I showed them in the scriptures that you're supposed to separate yourself from that person until they repent. They say, I know the Bible says that, but I can't do it. That was 25 years ago plus. I know the Bible says it, but I can't do it. That's mean. That's hurtful. I can't do that to that person. I have to stay in relationship with them, even if the Bible says otherwise. That was 25 years ago. So we either please men or we please God. You can't have it both ways. Now, fortunately, if you hang out with other people who have a desire to please God, then yeah, you probably can please God and please men. But only to the extent that those men also have a desire to please God by first and foremost obeying His Word. Could it be, folks, the point I'm trying to make here, could it be that the ungodly Peter speaks of here when he says the ungodly and the sinner? Is it possible that he's speaking of those uh, which Paul speaks of as having a form of godliness but denying the power. Is that possible? I think it is. I believe that's why Peter uses two words to describe those who are going to incur judgment in the afterlife. The ungodly and the sinner. The sinner's a sinner and he knows he's a sinner. He just doesn't want to change. The ungodly is someone who believes they are in possession of of a genuine faith, but they really are not. And the evidence is laid out here for us by Paul as he writes to Timothy all these things that he's used to describe the conditions of people in the last days. The ungodly, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. The power of God to change hearts, to change minds, to change lives, to turn people around, turn them away from following after sin and instead following after Him. Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Let those who suffer according to the will of God. We must understand and accept that sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer. Sometimes our suffering is self-inflicted. In fact, I would be suspicious that it might be more often self-inflicted than allowed to happen by God. And we get mixed up and confused there. We try to blame it on the devil or we get mad at God. The fact of the matter is the suffering is a result of our own disobedience to God. But those who suffer according to the will of God. As in verse 15, but when it is according to the will of God, we are to commit our souls to Him in doing good. In other words, we're to trust God with everything we have, everything we are, right down to our very souls, knowing that no matter what befalls us, He is in control and He is on our side. Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good. Why does Peter say this? Because that is the challenge 
That's the enemy's strategy. That's the temptation that in the midst of the trials, the tribulations, the suffering, we are tempted to back down, to walk away, to do less, to be more of an undercover Christian so that we don't have to go through these things. But by committing our souls to Him and doing good, we will continue doing good in this life whether anyone notices, pays attention, acknowledges our efforts, or gives us any credit whatsoever. Is that easy? No, but that's what God is calling us to do. I've been praying a lot lately that those who work so hard in this church, that people would just go out of their way to thank them, to acknowledge them, go up to James, go up to Kim, go up to Mike, Nikki, any of these guys, uh, Lorraine over in the cafe, and just say, thank you so much. You make it a real blessing to attend church here. Thank you for your hard work. Usually that doesn't happen, not just in this church, but not in any church. The people who do most of the stuff get very little acknowledgement. But we shouldn't need that. In our flesh, we need it. But in the Spirit, God wants us to rise above that. He wants us to suffer according to the will of God, commit our souls to Him in doing good. Even if people mock us, criticize us, condemn us, and persecute us for doing good. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good. Why do some people start out so well and then they just fade into the sunset? Because they got weary of doing good. Because they were under the misconception that if you do good, everybody's going to notice. They're going to pat you on the back. And they're going to thank you. And they're going to praise you. Well, you know what? You're not supposed to get the praise anyway. He is. So people get offended. They leave the church. They leave God. I've had it. I'm done. If this is the thanks I get, folks, the thanks you get is when you see them face to face. All you've got to do is hold on a little while. Am I saying we should all be rude to one another? Absolutely not. But the fact of the matter is, our natural tendency is to be rude. That's just human nature. We should be better than that. But even when we are not better than that, those of us who are out there committed, committing our souls to Him and doing good, we need to keep on going, keep on persevering. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season... See here, Paul uses an agricultural analogy. In this life, we're planting seeds. Sometimes we get to see the results. Sometimes we get to reap a harvest. That's cool, but not always. In fact, I would say more often than not, we will not see the fruit until we stand before Him. In due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So what is the devil's strategy with you, with me, with all believers? To get us to lose heart. And unfortunately, many times he works through human instruments to accomplish that. We must not, cannot lose heart. And so really it makes a lot of sense to hang around with brothers and sisters in Christ who will encourage you, who will uplift you, who will hang in there with you and say, let's stay in the race together. Let's make it to the finish line. I'll help you. You help me. But if you spend most of your time hanging out with people who don't care about these things, then guess what? You're not going to care about them either. And let me tell you, there are a lot of believers out there who spend a lot more time with non-believers than they do with believers. And when you do that, you're going to look and act and think more and more like a non-believer. Do you get it? Now I realize people have jobs, they have school, many responsibilities. But again, I'm hearkening back to the Jesus movement days which was a real, genuine, bona fide outpouring of the Holy Spirit, genuine revival. And at Chuck Smith's church in Costa Mesa, California, there was a Bible study every night of the week and every night was full. Because those people were hungry for the Word of God more than anything else. They wanted God. They hungered for God. They thirsted for God. You didn't have to worry about whether or not the seats were going to be full. They were there every... Boy, it was great because no matter what day of the week, 
You might have missed Sunday. You might have missed Thursday night. There was always a Bible study to go to. Nowadays, not just our church, but many churches, it's very, very difficult to get anybody to come out more than once a week. I'm not condemning anyone. I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying when we see an increase in midweek service and small groups and different activities above and beyond Sunday, then we'll know we're in the midst of a revival or there's a revival coming on. Because when you care more about God and you care more about worshiping Him, when you care more about fellowshipping with the body of Christ, you care more about studying His Word than all your other peripheral activities, then we know we're in the midst of a revival. How many of us here today would like to see revival? Pray for it. Folks, I'm not saying that there aren't any rewards for serving Christ in this life. Certainly there are. But the biggest and the best are being stored up for us and will be given to us when we see Jesus face to face. And by the way, what are those called? Treasures in heaven. Ever heard of that one? Matthew 6.20, Jesus says, in the previous verse, He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, which is what most people are engaged in doing. But in verse 20, He says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So what does that tell you? In order to take possession of those treasures, you've got to go where? Heaven. You don't get them here. You get them there. How do you get them there? By hanging in here now. By being willing to submit your life to God. Being a follower of Christ. Being obedient to His Word. Being willing to joyfully endure the the trials, the tribulations, the persecutions of this life. Not shrinking back. Not growing weary. Not being phased by the attack that you know is going to come your way. Knowing that in the afterlife, hello man, I don't know if you had your dream place to go. A lot of us is probably Hawaii. I know it's Deb, Dave, Georgie, me. We love Hawaii. That's the closest thing on this earth to paradise as far as we're concerned. But that's what awaits those who are willing to Walk the narrow road in this life, paradise forever with God. And for those who are not willing, they might have it easier in this life. But they're not going to have it easier in the afterlife. Because while we're in paradise with our loving Father, they're going to be someplace else with somebody who hates them. The old Four Spiritual Laws, Campus Crusade for Christ. Anybody remember that book? What's number one? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that true? Absolutely. The alternate version, the devil hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. Again, no-brainer. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. As always, it's a joyous, delightful, royal feast. To feed upon your word, it's so rich, it's so deep, it's so full. Thank you, God, for the power of your word. It's not a book written by men. It's your book. You wrote it. And it's a living, breathing document. And it is powerful, dynamic. It has the power to change hearts and minds, to transform lives. We pray for anyone here today, Father, who has not yet experienced that that this very day they might come up to the front and pray with some of our prayer team members to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, for others who perhaps have begun to drift away, maybe they've bought into some of these false teachings and they're unsure. They don't know if they have a genuine faith. I ask that they would come today, Father. You'd draw them by your Holy Spirit and they would recommit their life to Christ, renew their faith, renew their beliefs, come back into line with your Holy Scriptures. Father, for whatever else is going on, you know every heart here today. You know what's going through the hearts and minds of every individual. Father, for those who are crying out inwardly for help, for encouragement, for strength, for guidance, for provision, for healing, 
Lord, draw them by your Spirit that they might have that opportunity to receive prayer, to be uplifted and encouraged, to have people come alongside them, Lord, and lift them up into your presence. Bless this time of ministry as we close now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.